0: Welcome to the 386th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with author Simon Lelich, author of the new novel, The Search Party. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story, one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S. Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Simon Lelich, author of the novel The Search Party. Lelech's previous novels have included The House and The Liar's Room among others. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. Sure. If someone listening hasn't heard about your novel The Search Party yet, how would you describe the novel?
1: Oh, I suppose it's a, a murder mystery in a sense. Uh, there's a missing girl and five friends who set off to to try and find her. And they quickly discover that the search party they, they formed isn't quite what they planned. And it turns out to be something of a, of a witch hunt. So you've got the, the story unfolding from their perspective, but you've also got a detective inspector who's trying to piece things together from halfway through the the investigation, as it were. That's when the, where the book starts. So you've got a uh, kind of two strands to the story and uh, they hopefully come together at the end.
0: And so do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write The Search Party?
1: Yeah, I, I, I do. I've read, well, I've always loved Stephen King's novella, The Body. I actually came to it first as Stand By Me, the film, the movie, which I've always loved. I've always loved that that premise, that sort of initial starting hook of a bunch of friends heading off into the wilderness. So I've always had that at the back of my mind as, as a kind of story I would like to write. Uh, and then I was reading, it was John McGregor's Reservoir 13, which is, I don't know if you, are you aware of the book? Have you read it? I have not. I'm
0: very aware of Stand By Me and the Body novella, but I'm not aware of the one that you just mentioned.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's John McGregor. He's, he's a British author. He's a, he's, he's a fantastic writer. It's a, it's a very different genre. So he wrote a book, as I say, Reservoir 13, where someone goes missing. And it's it's not your sort of typical mystery because you never, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, I think it's on the back cover. You never actually really find out what happens to this person. But it's about how the community um, is affected by someone going missing. So it's more, much more of a literary novel. But there's a group of friends in there, and they—they, they, I think there's a, a paragraph where they decide to go and form a search party for their friend, and then quickly turn tail and head back home. Uh, and I just—I was reading that, and then I, I thought of Stand by Me, and I thought, what happens if they go a little bit further, and what happens if? They're not just trying to unravel the mystery of what happened to their friend. There's also a, a mystery about what they're actually taking with them. So, yeah, so that that was the initial kind of impetus for the for the novel. What are your earliest memories of reading and books? Oh, I, 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 to be honest, I don't remember not being around books, not reading or having books read to me. I remember right from a writing perspective, I remember being ill in junior school. So I would have been about... I don't know, probably about nine. And I was off school for probably a full term. So it was a couple of months. I set to writing a, a series of books. I called them books. They're about 12 pages long, I think. But I set to writing this series of books about a teddy bear who comes to life when his owner goes to sleep. And I think I've still got them somewhere in the loft. Yeah, that's where they're going to stay. But yeah, no, that was my first kind of... I, I've, I've always loved words. I've always tried, I, I think I actually, before the TED books... as I I call them, I I started to write sort of really bad Lord of the Rings ripoffs. So I've always wanted to write. And I think I've always had, my my mom's always a massive reader. So we've always had books in the house. Yeah. And and
0: so can you tell me about the process uh, of writing just in terms of obviously, given your success as a writer and the novels that you've had published, you, you kept writing from those early stories of a teddy bear that comes to life. What was your journey? And then if you can remember when you first started working on the first novel that you had published, what was that like?
1: Okay, so I, I after university, I, I had no clue what to do. So I became a journalist because I knew I liked writing uh, and I knew Journalism had something to do with words, so that kept me occupied for probably about ten years, uh, off and on. And I, I think that kind of sated my 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 appetite to to write. So I didn't do much creative writing in that time. But then I I got to the point where I was getting a bit fed up, itchy feet, and I start. I wrote one novel, which was I finished. It wasn't very good. There was actually I had some interest from from a couple of agents. It, it quickly died a death. So that's now firmly in the bottom drawer, just pinning down the Ted books, probably and. Then I started with what became my first published novel, which was called Rupture over here. It was called A Thousand Cuts in the States. And that was, yeah, that was quite a quick quick process in, in the end because it, it was, I think the difference for me from the, the other stuff I tried to write is I stumbled on a, an idea that really excited me and I didn't have to get up at, forced myself to get up to write it. I I was desperate to do it. Any free time I had, I was at the keyboard. Yeah. So that that was, and that was the novel that became my first published novel.
0: And so what for you was the jump from those earlier novels? Was it what you just said, the idea for, for that kind of kept you going and and made the leap from something that you finished and didn't particularly like to having one that got published?
1: I think it was also a learning process. I think I, I don't, I, even though this first novel I wrote has never been and will never be published, it's, I don't consider it a waste of time or a waste of effort because I learned a lot, not just about what does work, but what, what doesn't work in a novel from a writing perspective. And I, um, I think the only way really writing it is inherently wasteful, even for a, for a novel, for the search party I must have. I keep a file of all the kind of sections I, I cut out of the book as I go. And I think it's longer than the book itself, but it all contributes to that kind of finished product. So you're, you're, probably I wrote two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand 250,000 words for the search party, and it ended up being about ninety, ninety five thousand 95,000 words. So I think that those initial forays into writing were invaluable. I, I never went to a creative writing class or anything like that. So I didn't have that kind of grounding. So for me, it was just giving it a go and trying to figure out what worked and what, what didn't. Can
0: you remember the first time you saw your first novel in a bookstore?
1: <laughs> uh, I, I got asked this the other day actually I've got a, a hazy recollection of um, <laughs> I, I, got, I, 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 I go running occasionally and I, I remember running past Tesco which is the big supermarket chain over here and they had copies of my first novel in the window and their, their, their bookshelf was spaced out onto the street so I remember running and hitting the the street where, where Tesco is and just jogging on the spot for about 10 or 15 minutes staring at my, my book in, in the window I, I probably saw it before then but that's the one like, that stands out in my mind
0: so you just mentioned the file for the search party on your computer and the the material that you wrote, but di- didn't end up making it into the final book. Mm. I'm curious, what is your writing process like? Do you once you have an initial idea for a novel, and you mentioned reading this Reservoir 13 and then thinking about the the body and Stand by Me, do you sit down and write a, a plot outline, or are you more organically and just? trying to see where the story leads you on the page
1: no exactly that the latter I, i've tried i think we just get impatient. with trying to write a, a plot outline like a, a full summary because i know from past experience that it's never going to turn out how i plot it and for me the the kind of joy of writing is the discovery of the of the story as i go so i i think with, with the search party i had to have an idea of just because of the way it's constructed uh, so for example you start on day six so stuff I have to have, had to have in my head fairly clear idea of what had happened up until that point. So that was that, so The Search Party is probably the book I've planned the most. But generally, I, I start from the initial premise. I write a chapter, try out a voice, maybe rewrite it a few times. And then when I find something that sort of uh, seems to create some momentum uh, and excitement for me, then I, I just keep going. And it is, it is quite wasteful. That's why I end up with all these offcuts. But it's very much the writing process is the discovery process for me.
0: And in that process of, of writing your various novels and having them published, and and as we talked about earlier, leading up to your first novel, did you ever take published novels that you enjoyed and try to basically tear them apart and figure out how they work?
1: Probably not consciously. I never sat down with a book and, and tried right. to dissect it. But I think... I think, you know, it's like when you're reading a book and sometimes you just, you get it. There are books that you, you think, well, there are books that you get to the end and you think, wow, that's amazing. I could never have written that. And I have no idea how the author would have done it. But there are other books where you see exactly how they would, they're, they're, it, it almost feels as though their thought processes would have been the same as yours. So there's an understanding that comes with certain books, which I suppose I fostered. And I think, I can't remember who it was, maybe Dorothy Brand in her on writing books. She, she talks about, Reading the book on two, reading any book on two levels. There's the, obviously the uh, the top level of just you know, pure enjoyment, but as you go, also trying to analyse it as you read, and it it's, becomes natural after a while, I think. But it's also something you have to keep your eyes open to as you're reading a book. But I've never, no, I've never actually sat down and, and, and dissected a novel for that purpose.
0: Gotcha. So what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels? That's
1: a tough one, right? I think the advice I always reach for is be careful of what advice you follow because it's a bit of a cop out. But I I think the thing that I've learned the most.
2: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.
1: writing is a very personal process and something that works for one person will not work for necessarily for another i, I think stephen king writes with uh heavy metal music you know really loud in a darkened room and, and that's what he um espouses on in on writing but yeah i did i tried it and it didn't work for me much as i love stephen king his process is, is very different from mine I, yeah i think you just need to be wary that 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 you've got to you, you obviously got to read a lot and you've got to put in the um the hours at the keyboard but other than that you need to figure out a way that works for you it it shouldn't be a slog it should be one of those things that that you give yourself time to enjoy or give yourself opportunity to enjoy Uh, and and you're only going to do that if you're writing to your schedule rather than someone else's
0: so are you working on another novel now
1: I am. I've I've just finished uh, and handed to my editor over here the follow-up to the search party, which is called, at the moment, it's called The Hiding Place. So that's basically the same detective who's in the search party uh, on another case a year or so so, uh, later. Uh, So that's at the editing stage. So I'm waiting for my my editor to to give me the thumbs up or more likely the the thumbs down and back to the drawing board email. (laughs) And now I'm just toying with uh, another standalone book. I'm at that stage we, we spoke about just now where I've just written a chapter, the opening chapter, and I've got this idea and I can't quite see how it ends yet so that's there's all these decisions you need to make at the the start of a book as you and your your listeners will be aware what what tends to use what a first person narration third person narration how many narrators what they know when they're when they're narrating when they're starting to narrate the story and that's where I'm struggling at the moment with this this new project but yeah it's very early days but I've got one on the one's done and and dusted at least so yeah I've got one in the bag Gotcha. So I'm
0: curious, given the fact that you are published oftentimes close to simultaneously in the US and the UK, what is that process like in terms of edits? Do you submit it to your UK editor and then they make edits? And I'm curious if you submit it to your US and they have suggestions, does it keep going back and forth? (laughs) Or do you finally say, okay, this is it for both markets?
1: Yeah, it it has happened like that in the past. We've we've streamlined it a bit now. So yeah, generally, my my UK editor is my editor, my my first line editor. And I think with a search party, what we did, it it went to Katie, my editor over here, and Amanda, my editor in in the States at the same time. Basically, the feedback came in all all at once. And I was able to go through it all all together, which is very helpful, because there have been instances in the past with, with different editors where I do the edits for the UK market, I think it's done. And then other edits come in from a different market, and all sorts of questions are raised that some of which have already been addressed. And it can get quite confusing with 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 the whole too many chefs thing. But yeah, it was quite streamlined with the search party, which was which I was glad for.
0: (laughs) So, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently
1: that you enjoyed? I'm rereading at the moment The Secret History for probably the fourth time. Again, it started. I, I, I literally I just picked it up because I was. I was just talking to you about that the uh, the project i have just at the very early stages with, and I was looking at how Donatart starts the narration, and it's quite unusual with the Secret History because it, he's telling the story that the narrator is telling the story from a distance of time, which isn't the typical way of doing it. The common kind of response to that is that it creates some kind of distance between distance between events in the novel and the the protagonist experience, but it works in the sequel history. It works brilliantly. So that's what I'm, I'm rereading at the moment. Oh, I, I I i can't think of any of it off the top of my head, but I've really I've been reading a lot of YA actually. Some amazing authors I've discovered, and my son made me read the uh, the Neil schusterman Scythe series, which is amazing, and also uh, Jenny Downham's Before I Die, which was fantastic. Yeah, so I, I i don't know if you guys know, but I also do some. I've, I've written a YA series, which I was just taking up most of my last sort of twelve months, as well as doing the adult kind sort of crime thrillers. I've got this kind of sideline in, in, in books for sort of younger readers. And that's actually the project I'm looking at at the moment. So I, I tend to alternate between the adult stuff and the stuff for, for younger readers. Yeah, I
0: noticed that on your website. So what is what are the names of the Y series in case listeners want to take a look at those?
1: Yeah, so the series for for kids I've done is it's called The Haven, and there's three books in the series: The Haven, the Haven Revolution, and The Haven Deadfall. And they're really for readers probably eleven plus. It's about a kind of secret organisation of kids set in and below the streets of London, a real world adventure story. But now I'm thinking about doing a, a YA kind of uh, thriller, really, because uh, my, my my kids are getting older, and my oldest son, who's thirteen, wants me to write a a crime book for for teenagers. So that's what I'm toying with at the moment. <laughs>
0: Great. Where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels?
1: I'm on Twitter, Simon underscore. That's obviously my website, SimonLelich.com. I think that they're, they're my, 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 my main channels. Yeah, I'm not massively into the social media at the moment. I'm, it's, it, it, I find it, I do get sucked in and it does eat into the writing time. So, so Twitter is the main point of contact.
0: Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Simon Lelich, author of the novel, The Search Party. The novel is available now. So go buy a copy. And Simon, thanks for doing this interview.
1: Thanks very much for having me on.
0: Now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Search Party by Simon Lelich, narrated by Ben Aragondade, Jack Rowan, Joe Gamonara, Nicole Davies, Fiona Button, and Sacha Dawin, available from Penguin Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold.
2: The bloody rain. For 24 hours it had fallen flaying the banks of the river with a tropical fervor. Except it was cold. Granted the summer was officially over, but just two days ago the volunteers had been wearing shorts, while Fleet had stood sweating in his thinnest suit. Since the weather had broken, the water had struck like winter hail. Hard, pitiless, icy. A month's rainfall in barely a day, so they said. Fleet didn't know about climate change or all that, but he knew when something wasn't right. And this weather, it was freakish, as messed up as everything else that was going on in this town right now. He paused in the doorway of his hotel to light a cigarette, taking almost as much pleasure from the brief burst of warmth as he did from the nicotine itself. He exhaled a cloud of smoke, that was immediately doused by the tumbling rain, then took two more drags and tossed the cigarette into the gutter, knowing it would be ruined anyway the moment he stepped into the torrent. That's fifty p. down the drain right there, said a voice inside his head. His wife Holly's, unmistakably, and Fleet felt a pang from somewhere in his gut. It was like an ulcer, this constant twinge and he hadn't yet found a way to stop it hurting. He thought of home. Was it raining like this there, he wondered, because it felt biblical. As if he were to get into his car and drive the three miles to the parish limits, would he find himself confronting a ring of blue sky, a rainbow bridge to the world outside? You, heavens above, rain down my righteousness. What was that, Genesis? Isaiah? The quote came unbidden, as powerfully evocative as a familiar smell, and it made him want to light another cigarette. Detective Inspector Fleet. Just as he'd been about to dash towards his company insignia, Fleet turned. It was the hotelier, a woman in her late forties, to whom Fleet had taken an instant dislike on first meeting her only to later reverse his opinion completely. She dressed primly, rarely smiled, and wore her hair in a skin-stretching bun. Fleet had marked her down as yet another disapproving gossip, in a town with far more than its fair share. But she'd proved discreet, generous, and obliquely loyal. In many ways, she was the closest thing Fleet had in this town to a friend. "'Here's a call for you,' said Anne as she pointed over her left shoulder. Her expression was apologetic. She was familiar enough now with Fleet's business to know the news he received was never good. Fleet checked the screen of his mobile. There were no missed calls, but there was also no reception. The entire town was pocked with dead spots, which seemed as appropriate an analogy as any. He followed Anne back inside, the hotel wasn't luxurious, but it was a luxury. Fleet lived only an hour or so along the coast, but rather than travelling back and forth, he'd taken a room here, at the Harbour View Hotel. For convenience, he'd told himself. The harbour view was no more or less than your typical seaside B, and Fleet might have picked any one of the dozen or so guest houses that were clustered up beside the harbour. All would have had space and Anne was the only thing that set this one apart. She cleaned his room, fried his breakfast, and now fielded his calls. She did so much, it made Fleet feel guilty, to the extent he'd started making his own bed. Not that he used it much anyway. Most nights since checking in under just a week ago, he'd sat up gazing at the harbour, imagining what might be hidden beneath the water. Anne showed him to the little office behind the reception counter and gestured to the receiver, lying unhooked on the desk. She nodded when Fleet offered his thanks and then closed the glass door to give him some privacy. "Rowan Fleet, he announced into the receiver. Boss, it's Nicky.